Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, a joint effort from the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program, Suffolk University Law School's Advanced Legal Studies, the Chicago Bar Association's Law Practice Management and Technology, and the Massachusetts Bar Association. Each month, episodes are presented by nationally known experts on a range of legal marketing topics, including promoting, growing, and marketing your law firm and or practice. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. everyone to uh, to this month of our lunch hour legal marketing webinar. Uh, today's topic is the 21st century lawyer uh, utilizing technology competency as a marketing tool. And today we've got Professor Andrew Perlman, uh, who teaches at Suffolk University Law School. He also directs the Suffolk University Law School's Institute on Law Practice Technology and Innovation. He's also currently the vice chair of the ABA Commission on on the Future of Legal Services. So when it comes to the future of law, using technology, ethical issues, Professor Perlman is your guy. Uh, He's got his hands in just about everything, Uh, so I I won't run down the list. I'll let let him tell you more. Uh, So, you know, with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Professor Perlman to uh, give us his presentation. Uh, And uh, let me just say uh, quickly, if you have questions, uh, please ask them via the chat, and uh, we'll be monitoring those. Uh, I know that he'd be happy to, uh, to answer questions. All right. So, so thanks, Andy. Uh, thank you. Thanks for that great introduction. You are the expert on marketing. I should hire you to market me. Uh, that was fabulous. So thank you. And, and thank you for all the tweets uh, broadcasting this program. I don't think my name has been tweeted so much uh, in recent weeks. So thank you for that. Jared was still tweeting this event about 30 minutes ago. So you all are real experts at marketing. And I, I personally appreciate it. So um I'm going to be talking about technological competence as a marketing tool, but the reality is uh, that technological competence is not just about marketing. In my view, and, and I think maybe I'm a little bit biased here because I teach professional responsibility, but I really think that technical, technological competence is also about legal ethics. But don't take my word for it. Um, the American Bar Association uh, established a commission a few years ago, the Commission on Ethics 2020. I had the privilege of serving as the commission's chief reporter, um, and the commission was responsible for producing a change to a comment to Rule 1.1 of the Rules of Professional Conduct, and 1.1 is the lawyer's duty of competence. And the change to the comment you can see on your screen For the first time in the Rules of Professional Conduct, the word technology appears. You might think that's overdue, and I think it was, but it's there. And the idea is today, even if you don't think of uh, technology competence as a marketing issue, I think you should, you should at least think of it as an ethics issue. This new comment in the model rules was recently adopted by the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, so this is also the concept that applies to lawyers who are licensed here. So the question is, how have lawyers responded to this idea that they have to have some kind of technological competence? What is the typical lawyer reaction? 
And unfortunately, I think it looks a little something like this. Many lawyers simply have their heads in the sand. Uh, and I think that's a problem, not only from an ethical perspective, but given this is about marketing, for those lawyers who are technologically competent, I really do think that it gives you a leg up uh, in the marketplace. So why, it, uh, I think a good question is, why are lawyers slow to adapt? Why uh, don't they understand technology to the extent that they could? Um, and why do I think lawyers who are able to use technology well, why do they have an advantage, both from a marketing perspective uh, and otherwise? I'm, I'm going to fall on my sword here uh, in terms of uh, some of the blame. And I, but I think somebody, let me just, uh, somebody, I hear background noise here, so I'm going to try to mute. Uh, let's see. Um, if you could just make sure everyone who's listening in uh, is on mute, that would be uh, great. Thank you. So the question is, uh, why are lawyers slow to uh, respond? And, and like I said, I'm going to fall on my sword and take some of the blame. As a law professor, I think law schools historically have done a terrible job preparing students for the legal marketplace. And let me uh, tell you a little bit of a story as to why I think that's the case. Um, and the story begins uh, with this slide. So as Heidi said, I direct an institute on technology, so you'll have to forgive me geeking out with a little Star Wars theme song. Uh, the idea is that not long ago, or I should say a long time ago, at a law school just across the river from here, uh, this man, Christopher Columbus Langdell, he has a pioneering name, uh, and he pioneered a new way to engage in legal education. His great insight was rather than asking students, law students, to read secondary sources to learn the law, treatises and the like, he came up with the case method of legal instruction. That is, lawyers should read cases, read precedents to figure out the basic principles of the law so that they could apply those principles in new contexts. It was a real great advance, and nearly every law school in the country adopted it. Now, that was really more than 100 years ago that he pioneered that approach to legal education. So you may wonder, what does legal education look like today? And the answer is that it still looks pretty much like this same guy. Uh, he uh, has been pushed to the side to some extent uh, with new doctrinal courses in a range of areas. Certainly, there has been change on that front. And Law schools have placed an increasing emphasis on skills such as legal writing uh, and clinical programs. So I, I'm not suggesting that nothing has changed, but the reality is that law schools, and I think as a result, lawyers, are still largely backwards looking. They look to where the law has been. They look to precedents, past practices, instead of to the future of legal services. Richard Susskind, a great author of uh, Legal Futures uh, books, a uh, great leading international thinker about the future of legal services delivery, he likes to quote Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky said, skate to where the puck's going, not where it is. And Richard Susskind makes the point that lawyers really need to start thinking that way as well, that they continue to practice where the law is as opposed to where it's going. In my view, I think law schools have been one step worse than that. We not only fail to teach our students uh, where the puck is going, 
or where it is right now, we tend to teach them where the puck was 50 or 100 years ago. And so I think the end result uh, is that our students and lawyers are ill-equipped for the future. So the question, I think the fundamental question, both from a marketing perspective uh, and just a successful practice perspective, is to ask, where is the puck going? What are the key new competencies that lawyers need to have in the 21st century? I recently wrote an article on this subject, and I identified six categories of new skills, new knowledge that lawyers need to have. Uh, as Heidi was mentioning, I, this is a lunch hour presentation, not a full day program. So I'm not going to go through each of these categories, though I'd be happy to come back and talk about any of these uh, to the extent that there's interest. Um, but I'm going to focus just on the last two. That is new law and then effective use of established legal technology. And there, I'm going to talk about a really wonderful innovation developed by Casey Flaherty called the Legal Technology Audit. So let me start with new law first and, and kind of give you a sense of what I mean by new law. So here's another concept taken from Richard Susskind about why new law is important. Uh, you'll see on this slide a lot of different categories ranging from bespoke, which is the British way of saying highly tailored, highly customized, all the way to the far end of commoditized. And I've kept his British spelling here, so those are not typos. Let me give you a little sense of what he means by the use of this slide. He suggests that in the past, legal services have been almost entirely custom tailored for each individual client. Uh, over time though, you can get standardized language, for example, in a contract or in an interrogatories or document requests, certain standard phrases, clauses, sentences, and the like. You can use technology to systematize the creation of those clauses, Eventually, technology can allow it to be turned around and made customer facing. You can think legal zoom here and be sold for a price, cutting lawyers largely out of the equation. And then finally, it can be commoditized in the sense that it's essentially costless to produce. Think about how easy it is today to incorporate a small business. So let me illustrate this through this slide. Imagine basic wills. I'll take you back to 1980. You can see the year at the bottom. Now watch as the year progresses uh, and we move forward to today, 2015. Many basic wills, if they're not commoditized, they're getting pretty darn close. Uh, so we're moved, the legal marketplace is moving in that direction. And I think if you look at transactions more generally, it's not the case that all transactions are becoming commoditized. Rather, we're seeing a splintering of the market where some things are certainly still bespoke, highly customized, highly tailored, but other aspects of it are just standardized all the way down to commoditized. The reality though, I think, and here's the real marketing advantage for lawyers who are thinking ahead, is that most lawyers are still trying to provide the bespoke service. Most law schools are still training law students to provide bespoke legal services. If you can learn how to deliver legal services elsewhere along this spectrum, it's a tremendous advantage. Uh, and the same is true for dispute resolution. And by dispute resolution, I mean not just litigation in courts, but all kinds of dispute resolution. Once again, we're seeing a splintering of this. Certainly, we still have bespoke dispute resolution, com commercial, sophisticated commercial trials or criminal trials, still highly customized. But on the far end, you can see commoditized dispute resolution. Let me give you an example. I recently had a dispute on eBay 
where I stole a gift card that I wasn't going to use on eBay, and I sent it to somebody. Lo and behold, the person claimed that he, I believe it was a he, did not receive the card and wanted a refund for the purchase price of the gift card. Uh, this was all on eBay, and so we had a dispute. How was it going to get resolved? Well, there's a company uh, that was spun off by uh, eBay called Modria that developed an automated process for resolving this dispute where we were guided through a series of questions and answers with not a human being involved to resolve the dispute. I ended up losing the dispute, but I actually found it was fair. And the reason I ended up losing the dispute is because I never got a return receipt and couldn't prove that the person I sent it to actually received the gift card. So uh, I lost that gift card, um, and, but I felt like it was a useful dispute resolution system. There's a lot going on that allows disputes to be resolved in these various new ways that might have gone to a lawyer uh, in the past. Again, everyone seems to be aiming for bespoke. Most lawyers are aiming there, and so are law schools. It seems to me that lawyers who can think outside that bespoke box have a real advantage, and it's an advantage that's not just marketing, although it certainly can be quite useful from a marketing perspective. It's a genuine advantage that can help you underprice competition and produce more business. Um, I'll take it. Here's an example. I think somebody may have just unmuted themselves, so if you could just uh, mute yourself, that would be great. Thank you. Uh, so here's the example, um, Seifarth Lean partnered with Nayota Logic to create something called Disclosure Dragon uh, to help automate the creation of private placement uh, memoranda uh, that are necessary um, when seeking uh, and raising capital. When a company is raising capital, it can often be a very expensive process. They automated almost all of it, and can, uh, they're claiming that they can reduce the cost of producing these PPMs by up to 80%. Just one example among many that I could give you about how new law can bring down costs. And if uh, lawyers are not savvy enough, they could really find themselves cut out of the equation. So taking us back to this slide of key new competencies, I wanna spend the rest of my time talking about established legal technology. And what I mean by established legal technology is I don't mean the fancy stuff like uh, automated document and assembly and expert systems. I mean the low hanging fruit like word processing uh, and Excel spreadsheets and using Acrobat uh, efficiently and effectively. So let me give you an example of inefficiency with Word. So for the, uh, many lawyers find themselves using Word for all sorts of reasons. Here's an example from a transactional document. Let's imagine that a lawyer wants to add a new provision in this transaction. Uh, somebody who doesn't know how to use Word well might insert the language, manually uh, include the Roman numeral, then has to highlight the relevant new provision, change the font, make it bold. Uh, and then after doing all that, uh, the lawyer is gonna have to update the other headers, because now that you've added a new section two of the contract, what was previously section two is now section three. What was section three is now section four. You get the idea. So somebody's going in here, you can see in this example, and going through and changing manually each of the provisions in this contract. And then you may have cross-references in the provision. This lawyer is manually updating all of those uh, cross-references. Uh, and then if the person really doesn't know what he or she is doing um, and may not be able to up, didn't automate the page numbering. And so this person uh, has to do that 
uh, as well. So it's very cumbersome, very time consuming. Um, so how should it be done? Somebody who really knows what uh, he or she is doing uh, with regard to Word can do everything that I just described in just a few seconds. Uh, insert the new provision, use styles to create the right header, a right font, um, and then uh, highlight the whole document, update the fields, all of the cross-references are automatically updated, and you're done. So uh, there are, this is what I would call the low-hanging fruit and what Casey Flaherty would call the low-hanging fruit because it can be done so much more efficiently uh, and effectively. Question is, are lawyers good at this? And the simple answer is no. And this is where Casey came into play from his own experience uh, in a, a law firm and then as an in-house counsel at Kia Motors. It was Casey's uh, experience that lawyers don't know how to use this low-hanging fruit, this basic legal technology, particularly well. He decided to test his uh, theory, his proposition. So what he did is he went out to his outside counsel while he was an in-house uh, in counsel and measured how long it took them to perform basic technology tasks like the one that I just showed you. And what he found was that tasks that took him about 30 minutes and really uh, realistically should not have taken lawyers more than 30, or I should say an hour, were taking on average five hours. Um, and so this proved to him that lawyers, most of whom were billing by the hour, were wasting a lot of his clients' money uh, because they just didn't know how to use basic technology well. So what he did was create a legal technology audit, and he decided to automate it. And I'm delighted and privileged to be working with Casey on automating what he created, so which is now called the Suffolk Flaherty Legal Tech Audit. Um, and so this is about marketing. I'll give you the URL, www.legaltechaudit.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. Uh, and so the idea was to create this so that many people can assess their technology skills and figure out whether they are performing the tasks that lawyers typically need to perform um, and performing them as efficiently and effectively as possible. So here's a, just a screen uh, capture from the trainer's companion that goes along with the audit, uh, giving you a sample of kinds of the kinds of skills that the audit tests. So a lawyer sits at his or her desk uh, in a live environment, is asked to perform a variety of tasks in Word, in Excel, and in Acrobat. And the uh, platform that we've created captures how long it's taking that person to perform each task, and then also whether those tasks have been performed accurately. When the lawyer is done, uh, a results uh, uh, page is produced, and you can see an example of one uh, on your screen. You can see a number of different tasks, one through 12. Uh, this is just by illustration. Uh, and you see the first line, accept changes, turn off track changes, delete comments. First question is, did the lawyer perform it correctly? Did the lawyer even know how to do this? Uh, if you do know what you're doing, it shouldn't take more than 30 seconds. In this case, it took the person 45 seconds. In the second example, fixing a footer, the lawyer didn't know how to do it and is assessed a uh, time penalty of 10 minutes, roughly equating to how long it would take the lawyer to go and figure it out or talk to the right person to correct it. So that the, all those times are added up. And at the end of the day, um, a summary report is created for each individual who takes the audit. So assignment one on in this picture is the word processing using Microsoft Word effectively. 
And the actual time that this lawyer took to perform those tasks was three-tenths of an hour. But with the penalties included, it really took the lawyers seven-tenths of an hour. And the target time was three-tenths of an hour. And the difference between the actual time and the target time was four-tenths of an hour. Or put differently, this lawyer spent 71% more time than was necessary. Or in other words, 71% of the time spent was wasted uh, relative to what it should have taken if the lawyer knew what he or she was doing. So what you can do is do that for every lawyer or paralegal, anybody who is a timekeeper in a law firm, and figure out how much of their time is actually wasted or get a good approximation of how much time they're wasting using very basic uh, technology that just about every law firm uses today. And so uh, then you can figure out, and you can see on this chart, using uh, basic assumptions about how much, what percentage of time partners spend on these kinds of tasks, associates, paralegals, or contractors. So just to take the associate uh, column here as the example, if we assume that about 30% of an associate's time is spent on these various tasks, and that an associate spends about, on an average day, eight billable hours, that means 2.4 hours of each day are spent on technology-related tasks. Going to this next screen, if you take 2.4 hours and imagine that you know 74% of that time is wasted, that suggests over on the right-hand column that that particular lawyer's time should be written off by about 26%, which is a pretty dramatic write-off. Clients can use that. Uh, lawyers can use that for their own internal assessment. There are a variety of ways this information uh, can be useful. And then it can be compared across law firms. So if you're a general counsel, you can see how various law firms that you're using are doing in terms of their use of these tools. Um, you even can assess penalties for law firms that have a lot of lawyers who decline to assess themselves. So uh, one question that comes up frequently when Casey and I are talking about this is lawyers often ask, especially if they're in a somewhat larger law firm, they say, well, shouldn't lawyers just be delegating this stuff? Why should they have to learn how to uh, perform all of these tasks? And I think there are a number of very important answers to this objection. Number one, this was a survey uh, of lawyers um, of 30 different skills and abilities recent law graduates were asked to rank the 15 most important in terms of their daily experience. Number six on the list was using office technology such as email and Word. So if you just ask lawyers themselves whether they're doing a lot of this, they will tell you that they are. Uh, here's a, a great study that was done by one law firm comparing the average number of keystrokes of secretaries, associates, uh, and or partners over time. And what this law firm found was that over a 10-year period, there was a significant increase in the amount of typing that associates and partners were doing relative to what they did in the past. And, and at the same time, a, a, a correlating or a corresponding reduction in the amount of uh, work that secretaries or word processors were doing. And so today, at least at this firm, 80% of the keystroke work is being done by lawyers, not by assistants. Another reason to be skeptical uh, are all the reports of secretaries and paralegal positions simply getting laid off. 
there just isn't as much support uh, as there used to be for lawyers who need to do this kind of work. And so the reality is lawyers are having to do more of it on their own. Other responses to the objection that lawyers should simply delegate it is that sometimes it's just easier and quicker to do it yourself. You've probably all been in that position where you may delegate it to somebody and it may not be done right and you have to correct it. Or it could just be something you could do in two minutes and the amount of time it would take to explain it to somebody else, you could have simply done it yourself. Um, again, staff might not do it the right way. We have an ethical obligation to supervise non-lawyer assistance and make sure it's done properly. That can be time consuming. Sometimes it's better to do it yourself. There can be version control issues. You may want to have some work done on the document while you need to work on the document. Um, and that can create all sorts of version issues where the need arises after hours. Even if you're fortunate enough to have an assistant, you may not have that assistant available to you when you most need it. Uh, and the other point I think is a, uh, one I've heard Casey raise, it's right on point. If staff really can do it, let them do it. Uh, and then audit them to make sure that they are doing it as efficiently as possible, especially given that many firms bill for that time. So what are the possible uses of the audit? I think there are several. Uh, number one, um, re requests for proposals to law firms often come from clients. If you can explain to a client that you use these basic skills as efficiently as possible, that could put you in a better position relative to other law firms that may be competing for the same business. Uh, if you already have a client, in terms of rate negotiations, it's a good way to say, look, we are making good use of our time. We are efficient. You can see the results of the legal tech audit or our technology training. So it puts you in a good position in that regard. It can be used just for internal assessment. So even if you don't wanna look outside of your firm or your practice, just for assessing your own abilities or the abilities of other people in your law firm, it can be a wonderful tool. It can even be used uh, for advancement purposes as one criteria to determine whether somebody uh, is performing as well as he or she can. Um, and it can be improved efficiency for a firm, especially as more and more law firms are moving away from the billable hour and clients are asking for alternative fee agreements. Uh, if lawyers are getting paid the same amount, regardless of how much time they spend, that is, we're moving away from the billable hour, the more efficient you are, the more money you will end up making. And then finally, given that this program is all about marketing, uh, or supposed to be at least a part about marketing, it's a wonderful marketing tool, right? To be able to say on your website that your lawyers take the audit, they pass the audit, and they can perform well, that gives you a marketing advantage. So um, uh, all in all, uh, that's all I wanted to say about uh, marketing and technological competence as a marketing tool. I think I was told to go for about 40 to 45 minutes. I came in early, which for a law professor is, I think, unheard of. Um, so uh, what I will do now is take any questions. I don't know, Heidi, if you're still listening in. Um, if you are, let me see if there are any uh, questions out there. Yeah, if folks have questions, uh, please use the the chat box. Uh, I know Professor Perlman would love to, to answer questions, love to entertain those. <clears throat> I think Casey, um, and by the way, I, we didn't mention at the top, but Casey was uh, traveling and got caught, uh, stuck in an airport. He was going to join us. I think he was going to try to call in. I'm not sure if he is on the line, but if he is, uh, he'd be, uh, we'd love to hear a few words from him. 
So uh, I see a couple of, uh, uh, one question here. Are there examples of Solos firms using their audit results in marketing? Uh, as of yet, no. The, the audit is relatively new. The newest platform of it just came out of beta uh, about a month ago. So this is kind of real cutting edge at this point. So nobody's done it yet. Uh, so if you're asking because you're interested, so we could be the first exclamation point. Yes, you could um, get in touch with me and I'm happy to uh, make those arrangements. So uh, please do let me know. Costs of purchasing the audit. Uh, I'll refer you to um, uh, Casey Flaherty, who can give you the pricing. Um, it's uh, You can get a license for your whole firm or for each individual lawyer. Uh, but I think you'll find that it is generally cheaper than buying the software itself. So uh, I think um, I, I, I don't want to misspeak without Casey being on the line in terms of what the current pricing is. But uh, like I said, it's going to be about the price of actually purchasing uh, this, uh, you know, a Microsoft Office suite outright. Other questions? So Andy, you, uh, you, you talk, um, I mean, you, you talk a lot with uh, practitioners and, uh, about using technology. Uh, are there certain tools, you know, that you'd rec, you know, you'd recommend to uh, solo and small firms that they should really be using uh, in their practices now? Good question. So um, let me a a answer that, and then I'll answer Karen's question that she just posted. So in terms of technology beyond what I was just talking about in terms of the legal tech audit, is that your question, Heidi? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I think there are a whole range of possibilities, right? Law practice management, and it also depends very much on the size of the law firm. Mm -hmm. uh, so lot, the available tools for law practice management are great. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the leaders right now is Clio, has a terrific platform. I increasingly hear from Solos and Smalls who are using that. Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of knowledge management tools, especially smaller, mid-sized firms that may not have a good knowledge management system are really missing out because they're not finding out all of the wonderful work that maybe a colleague has already done and that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, I think from another angle, uh, you may have seen that one of the notes about technological competence is cybersecurity. And I think this is just an awareness issue. Uh, I find too many lawyers are not simply encrypting hard drives on their laptops, right? They're taking it with them, and they're, I think, creating an enormous risk from a malpractice perspective when they do that, where they put sensitive information on an unencrypted flash drive. Um, I think that can, is a real liability risk. Other technology, this is not about um, technology you could buy, but some things that you can use, like just the internet. For, uh, for marketing, for investigations. There are all sorts of wonderful tools out there to do things that maybe in the past you would have needed to hire somebody else to do. So okay. I think um, the answer varies depending on the type of practice. It varies depending on what it is that you're looking at doing, whether it's marketing, investigation, whether it's e-discovery or law practice management. So there are a whole range of tools that are out there for lawyers who know where to look. Um, so uh, going to Karen's question, recommended courses to improve efficiency in the use of Word and Excel. So uh, I don't want to be too salesy about the legal tech audit, but one thing that comes um, along with it um, is that you could uh, take it as many times as you want. So uh, you take the audit and you can learn how to do these skills. Um, and so uh, it can be a learning tool in addition to being an assessment tool. And that's one value of it is that it's educational. Uh, so 
uh, I would recommend that. And of course, there are legal tech trainers that are out there who will come in uh, and help you prepare. So if you're not interested in legal tech audit, but just want to kind of figure out how to do this stuff, um, lots of good companies out there who provide training, including online training, um, that can really help you if you feel like you need to uh, understand these skills better than you do. Other questions? So it looks like Casey uh, was able to call in. Um, do you see his phone number listed up here? We could. Uh, let's see. Unmute him. Uh, let's see if I can see it. Participants here. One second. Uh, yes, I see his number. Which one is that? Uh, it's nine. The nine four nine number. Okay. All right. Let's get him on the line here. Pretty sure Casey. that's him. Casey. Uh, hi everybody. I'm really. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm at. I'm at Love Field, and there is no lounge here. So. Uh, <laughs> sorry right. for not being on, and sorry for the background noise. Uh, but Andy, of course, did a did a stellar job. I just wanted to comment really quickly on the the marketing aspect. Uh, many of you, but maybe not all of you, saw uh, the article in the Washington Post uh, that came out on Monday about the the legal tech audit, and they they quote from Connie Breton at NetApp, who's their chief of staff for legal, uh, on the fact that she's going to ask all of her firms to take it. What they, what they left out of the piece, which I enjoyed the entire piece, but uh, that though Connie is actually a, a really good friend of mine, I wasn't the one who brought the, the LPA to her attention. It was actually her LPO, her legal process uh, outsourcing firm. Uh, they were proactive. Um, they took it. And once they took it, they started marketing it to their clients. And it was only then that Connie decided, well, if they can do it, I should ask all my other firms for it. And so they got credit um, where none of the firms will. The rest, the other firms are just going to be doing what the client asks. And they're expected to be competent. And if they're not, they're going to have a problem. Um, but being competent is just, is just table stakes. Um, it's, not, it's not going to help them. The only one who got an advantage from it was the LPO because they were the first movers. Because they were the ones who proactively brought it uh, to her. And that's my sense about how the, how the market will move on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's the legal world. It changes very slowly, but it will be, uh, uh, firms, LPOs, solo practitioners, whomever, uh, they'll do it. And then they will proactively market to the clients and that will, that will get the clients to then ask everyone else for it. And it's only that first mover that will, get the advantage. And so that's, that's my sense of the, the marketing aspect of it. Um, but Connie's also instructive, um, because of what she does. Connie does not do any legal work. She's a lawyer, but she is the chief of staff for legal. She is in kind of a COO position, um, of the legal department. Uh, and she's not alone. Uh, and, and she runs a major Silicon Valley based organization called clock. Um, which is the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. Uh, and they are now joining with similar groups in <clears throat> Southern California, Texas, uh, New York, uh, even Boston, um, to, to uh, establish the first new ACC section in the last 10 years, uh, which is the Legal Operations section. 
And it's the very first section to include, to allow non-lawyer members. And uh, these people, along with uh, kind of a parallel movement of legal procurement, uh, are, are kind of a vanguard of, of non-lawyer legal professionals. And they may or may not be lawyers, but they are people who are not invested in the individual relationships. Instead, they are invested in the department and aligning it more with the businesses they serve, uh, which means metrics, which means uh, empirically oriented analysis, uh, which means not only looking at their own internal value chain, but taking a supply chain perspective and looking at the, the value chains of their suppliers, which means uh, their lawyers, their law firms, their LPOs. And uh, where a lot of in-house counsel actually derive their authority from their budget, and so why would you voluntarily reduce the source of your authority? Um, these folks, uh, their performance is based on actually cutting that budget. Uh, they are tasked with that, and it's it's it really is a, a mini revolution in the way that legal departments are run, and it's at the very beginning, and uh, they're going to be asking for metrics, and the LTA is just one. Um, there's a metrics puzzle, and the the LTA is is one small piece of it. Um, and there, there's a real sense in that where marketing efforts used to be kind of one to one communications. I, as an outside counselor, I'm going to market to a particular inside counsel. Now you're you're marketing to an entity uh, that that takes a, a very different view of uh, what legal work is and, and how retention decisions should be made. So uh, again, I apologize for all the background noise. I apologize for not being on the webinar and I'm happy to take any questions though. Uh, I can't see them. So someone will have to read them too. Casey, I've got a couple for you. Somebody asked earlier about the current pricing for the audit and I didn't know the answer or whether you've uh, settled on a particular price. Can you offer any insights for people? <clears throat> oh yeah, I, I heard that. So the, the rack, the rack rate is uh, one ninety nine, um, but you know it's legal and that's a rack rate. Uh, not everyone pays it. Uh, it really depends on uh, volume. Uh, we'll negotiate enterprise wide licenses. You know, at this point we're a business and we'll operate like any other business. Which you know will that's that's the list price. But you know, uh, uh, just as with lawyers' rates, uh, it's negotiable. Casey, somebody else asked a question that we have heard before, which is uh, this person uses a Mac uh, and wanted to know if there's going to be any progress in terms of making the audit available for people who use Macs. Uh, there, there will be. It's, it's, it's number three in terms of our, our, our product plan right now uh, as, we look at, as we look at our product map and where we want to take it. And map, Mac is a, a high priority. I mean, we started with windows because if you if you look at the ilta uh, survey uh it's uh, it's a hundred percent installation base uh at all the firms that responded to the survey for for windows um but it's actually mainly for our corporate uh clients that we really need to get the mac version going because there's a lot of corporations especially in silicon valley um that have a lot of mac users so the answer the answer is yes uh, I don't. I don't have a specific uh, uh, timeline on it. Uh, my my best guess is probably uh, 
uh, two months. But then again, this is software development. So uh, whatever someone says, take it and double it. Uh, but my best guess is two months. Uh, no other questions pending. Heidi, did you have anything else for us? Uh, no, I don't see any any other questions. Um, Casey, it's it's great to have great to have you on. Uh, hear your your thoughts as well. Um, you know, any uh, you know, I know many of our uh, our folks on the line are solo and, and small firm practitioners, uh, and so you know, we did talk talk a bit uh, about how this. Um, how solos and, and small firms can be using uh, using this audit uh, and technology in general. And I, I don't know, Casey, if you had any thoughts on, on that in particular. Well, uh, I do, uh, simply because when I went out and audited firms, I found that small firms had the highest degree of variance, meaning they were the outliers. They were the worst and they were also the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the large firms are were clustered, clustered in the middle. And so it, it, it can be a... Uh, a true uh, differentiator because one of the one of the things that the smaller firms actually have to do is explain why their prices are so low, uh, which which sounds odd, but uh, we we still exist kind of in a credence good context where the price demand relationship is inverted, so that price is in, is sometimes seen as an indicator of quality, and. Uh, I, I'm hoping that as we move to a more metrics-oriented uh, uh, universe, that will change. Um, but one of the things that smaller firms need to do is they can they can compete on price, um, but then they actually have to convince uh, the in-house counsel. And again, I know it sounds crazy that that they can that they can do the work that that there are reasons why they can offer a lower price. And one of the best possible reasons is that that they're that they're an outlier when it comes to leveraging technology that 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 they they actually take advantage advantages of of their scale meaning uh using their past work product and using their skills with the software to and i don't want to take uh say shortcuts because it, it you don't want to suggest that there's a lower quality i actually think there's uh, a higher quality when you're using technology properly because there's lots of machine, not lots of mistakes the machine would never make. Um, and the machine never gets tired, people do. And so if they're spending their time doing mind numbering drudgery, their mind is numb and they're not thinking about those actual areas where they add value. So, Casey, we got another question in. Somebody asks, um, are you saying that the legal tech audit gives feedback on what tasks were done inefficiently? And the answer, I can answer that one. Answer is yes. That's exactly what the kind of feedback that it gives you. It will drill down and tell you specifically what kinds of tasks you could have performed uh, more efficiently within a given piece of software like Microsoft Word. The second part of this question was, does it give you feedback on how to work more efficiently. So in other words, if you were to purchase the audit, what information would it give you beyond just your metrics? Can it actually teach you? Casey, you wanna take that one? Well, yeah, so I provide for free a trainer's companion, which uh, outlines possible methods of completion for every single task. Uh, it's, not, it's not comprehensive in that there, there are 10,000 ways to do just about anything. Um, I pick a few of them and and provide examples of how to do it uh, efficiently. And and that's a a really big point is this is not a game of gotcha because you can take it an unlimited number of times. 
it's it's absolute and because and because lawyers are the ones who choose when to release their scores. Um, even if the client asks, we don't even tell them that you've taken it unless you give us permission to do so. Uh, uh, but and so you you have every opportunity to take it, identify exactly where you're deficient, and then uh, train up on how to do it correctly. And one of the things that I do in the trainer's companion, and this is this is in part to help help people switch their mindset is every single task uh, where, where I provide the a potential solution, I link to a place on the web where it outlines exact solution. Um, all of this stuff is available. It's about getting people into the mindset of there's an app for that. When they, when they uh, find something that's highly labor intensive and extremely boring, it, that's a problem to which there is likely a software solution. And if they go to their favorite search engine, um, they've, they're not going to have too much of a problem finding it. Um, there's not a single task on the LTA for which there, there aren't 95 different free web pages um, that will tell you exactly how to solve this particular problem. And so, Casey, do you supply the trainer's companion with the purchase price of the audit itself, or is that something separate? Oh, well, it's, it's separate in the sense that as long as people agree not to provide a, a walkthrough, I, I provide the trainer's companion even before I sell them the audit. Uh, it's, it's mainly for firms that have uh, trainers or it's for training companies. I mean, that, that was the purpose of it, but I have no problem sending the companion to just about um, anyone, whether or not they've uh, purchased the audit um, because it's, it's not, it's not a walkthrough. Um, and this test, it, there's no secret, there's really no secret about what's on it. It's like when my kid has a, a swim test, um, he knows exactly that he needs to swim from one end of the pool to the other and go on, and go underwater unassisted. It's not a surprise to him. It's has he acquired the skills to do it? This is a, this is a, uh, a, a skills-based competence assessment. Um, not, not a, not a game of gotcha. Uh, so I don't have any problem, uh, sharing it with, with just about anyone, they just have to agree uh, not to create a walkthrough. Because the only thing that scares me is the idea of people passing without learning. Um, that that makes you know that defeats the entire purpose of the audit. And then another question, and I think I know the answer to this. Uh, so this person is asking if they have Microsoft Word and Excel, but it's on a Mac, they still won't be able to take the audit at least at this point until the new version of the software comes out that's Mac compatible. Yeah, until until we have Mac compatibility, um, it's not gonna it's 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 not gonna function on a Mac no matter what. Even if, even if you're running Parallels and you're actually running Windows, it's still a it's just it's a it's a different platform, um, and uh, uh, we we coded it in uh, you know Microsoft uh, 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 Visual Basic uh, and using Microsoft Design Studio, and it it just doesn't translate um, to Mac automatically. I mean, it, we can get it there, and we know we can. It's just going to take a little bit of labor. Great. Well, I think that's that's about it. Um, I see some people logging off already. I don't want us to be the only people talking. So I, maybe this is a good time to wrap up. Uh, well, well, thank you. And, you know, and, you know, regardless, you know, I, I understand that the audit is an excellent tool. Um, but, you know, 
whether or not you use the audit, um, the idea behind the audit, I think, is what you know what folks should should keep in mind. And certainly, um, you can you can you know play up your own technology competence uh, to uh, to market your your firm, and that's and that's really what this is all about. Um, Casey, I'm glad that we were able to get you on the line. So thank you for for joining us, and and uh, Andy, thank you so much for the excellent presentation. Uh, clearly, there's a, there's a lot of food for thought uh, there. And I think, you know, this is really where we're heading, uh, clearly as a profession. And so if folks can really get ahead of the curve now, uh, they're going to be better off for it. Um, so thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning in to, to this month of our Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Program. Uh, we'll send out information about next month's. Um, but if you're interested in uh, the slides or a recording of this program, we will also post the, those, assuming Andy's willing to uh, share the slides uh, with us, uh, which I'm hoping he is. Uh, but that will be posted on our website soon. So, uh, so thank you to everyone. I uh, appreciate it. And appreciate uh, Andy and uh, Casey for making the time. Thanks for having us. Take care. Thanks for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join us for the next episode covering legal marketing topics, including promoting, growing, and marketing your law firm and or practice. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.